Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The reason I read on a triennial cycle and I try to keep us religiously um, on that cycle is because otherwise it's very easy to avoid certain texts, like this morning's text, for example. So um, it's easy to say, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to study that. I don't want to prepare that. It's too much to go into. Ugh. Um, but here we are. It keeps us honest. It keeps us confronting these texts. It keeps us in dialogue with these texts. And each time we come to it, it's an opportunity for us to um, to c- hold it a little bit differently because we're different than the last time we confronted it. That's true of, of every um, every piece of Torah. Um, for me, it's always it's always a reminder that not everybody has read this text and understood this text, and so it's always really important to um, to answer like what the popular understanding of the message of this is and how it's used uh, by people in a really terrible, terrible way. So we're gonna we're gonna just take a deep breath. It's gonna be hard. I'm telling you, it's gonna be hard. Harder than last week. So, um, so just I just want to invite us always, we'll say a bracha in a minute. I just want to um, remind us that we are taking the text on its terms. We are taking the text. Um, we have to appreciate the text in its setting. Then we can do what we want with it. But you know me. We're, we're going to have to look at it in its setting. And then we can do whatever we want. We can say, this is horrible. Oh, my God. Okay, that's fine. But let's uh, first appreciate it in its own context. And then we can... Um, Elucidate from that. Ask a question. Uh, from what you said, I'm gathering that not every congregation or every division of Judaism does the triennial cycle. They don't all do it the way we're doing it. Correct. Okay. So, and is it just up to the menhag of the congregation? Yes. Okay. Um, but certainly in Torah study, most people I know do not do Torah study on a triennial cycle. Okay. Even if the congregation's reading from the bima on a triennial cycle. The rabbi picks what they want to teach from the Parsha. Because they want to avoid some things. Because they would like to avoid this morning's text at all costs, if possible. Do you do this text in the seventh grade? No. (laughs) We do not. All right, so we're going to start at chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, He rose to greet them, and bowing low with his face to the ground, he said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night and bathe your feet. Then you may be on your way early. But but they said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned his way and entered his house. Okay, hang on on a sec. So we we got, because we we aren't reading it, we are in Parshat Vayera, and we've had an announcement in chapter 18 that God is going to tell Avraham what God is about to do vis-a-vis the city of Sodom. So God says, should I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? And God decides, no, I'm not going to keep from Abraham what I'm about to do, and says to Avraham, Avraham, here's what's going to happen. The folks of um, Sodom are so horrible uh, that I need, I'm going to blow up the city. Right? And um, we get the famous... We get the famous speech by Avraham, which right, which we didn't get from whom? Noah. Which we didn't get from Noah. We get you know an argument. Thank you. From 
Thank you, uh, Eleanor. We get an argument uh, from Abraham that what about the innocent people? And so we have that wonderful dialogue between Abraham and God. And we get the sense that something's changed with Abraham. God did not consult with Noah, right? Like God, God just kind of said, here's what's going to happen. And then God does it, right? We get a change with the relationship with Abraham. There's an intimacy. There's a, there's a sense that God doesn't want to keep something that, that is important, right, to God from Abraham. And God listens. Like when Abraham says, well, what if there are 50 righteous people? God says, fine, find me 50. You know, like, and, so, and this negotiation goes on. So God takes Abraham's opinion seriously. So it's not only that God discloses to Abraham, it's that, it's that God listens when Abraham answers. And we are learning something about God here. What are we learning about God? When we talk about pagan gods and pagan gods blowing stuff up, why do pagan gods blow stuff up? Why do they kill people? Why do they hurl lightning bolts? Because they want to. To assert their authority? Because they want to. Because they want to? It's enforcing the, the law. So they're their law. So they're noticed? What might cause them to throw a thunderbolt or turn someone into a spider? Disobeying. Punishment? Punishment? Punishment for? Disobeying. Sometimes disobeying? Showing power. Sometimes just to show power because they're jealous. You worship that other God and don't pay enough attention to me, right? Or just because they want to. We all came up with reasons that make sense. In the pagan world, people did not expect the gods to make sense, right? If some Zeus hurls a, a lightning bolt and your house burns down, oh well, it's because Zeus wanted to. You don't get to know why. They uncovered a, an ancient poem um, from uh, Canaanite pagan tradition. Um, it's called The Poem of the Righteous Sufferer, which they found in Mesopotamia. And the poem goes as follows. What is good in one's sight is evil for a god. What is bad in one's own mind is good for his god. Who can understand the counsel of the gods in the midst of heaven? The plan of a god is deep waters. Who can comprehend it? Where has befuddled mankind ever learned what a god's conduct is? Huh. That is the setting in which our story takes place. Are we still asking that question? Hang on. So that is the setting. That's the backdrop against which our text is written. Therefore, Abraham's conversation that we see, you have to read this in the mind of the region and the time, is a huge reconstruction of the behavior of deities. Why? Well, what's the difference? Abraham is calling God to God. obey his own justice. He's saying you're a just God and therefore there are rules for you. Abraham is saying you are the universal, almighty, all-powerful, mm -hmm. omniscient, mm -hmm. just <laughs> God. Therefore, your behavior is constrained by your own justice. This is a brand new idea in the ancient world. Gods were not called to task for their behavior because there were no standards for their behavior. They could do whatever they wanted. 
It's a different question. Do we think it's deserved what God causes? That's a whole nother question. What we're looking at now is the theology of this text is a brand new idea on the scene that the God of justice, the God of Israel, which is for us the God of the whole world, is constrained by God's own qualities of mercy and of justice. We still look at God the way they did. We say God's uh, God works in mysterious ways. You hear that all the time. It's usually you hear that when people can't defend what they <laughs> think is an act of God that is unjust. Shouldn't the just God do justly? Asks Avraham to God. Well, we we ask the same question. And when there's a behavior that we think is God caused that has no has no justice associated with it, then we have to say, well, it's a mystery. Why do children get cancer? Well, like the Holocaust. So the important thing is you. The important part of what I just said is that you're you're locating the cause of what happened in God. <coughs> That's the critical factor. That's how I can answer both of you. Is I don't believe God causes that. No, I don't. So if I don't locate the cause in God, I don't have a problem. People who locate the cause in God have a problem. And often the answer is, it's a mystery. Capital M. Because otherwise, how can you defend God? How could you turn around and worship God tomorrow? Why would you worship God tomorrow? If God causes cancer in little children. If God caused the Holocaust, if God caused a hurricane, then how could you turn around the next morning and come to shul? This this is the eternal struggle. This is the eternal question. And many different peoples have answered that question many different ways. One instinct is, my reward will be in the next life. That is a very popular answer. The more life sucks here, that answer becomes way more popular. That's the Christian answer. If it's one Christian answer is, I if I suffer here... I am rewarded on the other side. Believe me, there's plenty of Jew. There's plenty of Jews who go there. Like in Olam Haba, right? It will all be fine. You know, I just suffer what I have to suffer in this world. In Olam Haba, you know, it will all be fine. Um, but more of a Jewish answer tends to be this kind of, you know, who knows? Or, or another very Jewish answer to that is, what have I done that brought this on my child? My mother's. I've heard this more times than I can tell you from Jews who never darken the door of a synagogue ever. They, they are not observant Jews. And still, they ask me, Rabbi, what have I done that God would do this to my child? So it's, it's absolutely a part of our culture. It's ingrained, right? That we, so we, we're dealing with the theological question. Our answers are different from their answers. I want you to see that the question is different. There's a new question on the table from early Israel that the God of Israel is just and therefore has to justify something terrible that seems unjust. And Abraham calls God out and God does not get angry. So because Abraham and others have communicated with God, so to speak, they have some notion of expectations God and what God might, how God might approach different issues. Did this, uh, the, the people in the pagan world have any idea what their gods would do, or did it was whatever the God that they 
They had no idea what the God was going to do. they didn't know what to expect. No. So that's why there was a lot of offerings. You made offerings. You, right? You tried to propitiate the gods. You tried to please the, please the gods so that they would look on you favorably. And we but, still do that, too. But your God can look at you favorably. But if another God is teed off, <laughs> right, at your God, they might zap you just to get at your God. Right? If I'm a worshiper of Baal and there's somebody who's worshiping Ishtar, right? Everybody figured like if something bad happens to me and I have this great relationship with Baal, it might be because Ishtar's ticked off, right? At Baal, and so Ishtar zaps me as a follower of Baal, right? So like, so they even if no you idea. have a good relationship with a god, you're sponsoring your patron god. There was a pantheon, and the chaos that reigned in the world was blamed on the chaos that reigned in the heavens, right? And human beings get caught. Think of your think of your Greek mythology. A god comes down and rapes a woman as a swan, and the woman winds up paying for it because Hera's jealous. Right? So human beings were constantly caught in the in the in the battle or in the in the chaotic behavior of the pantheon, and there was very little control. There was very little one could do. So you have to ask yourself, what then does that lead human beings, how does that lead human beings to behave? Right? So so early Israelite tradition, is it's not just about God. Abraham can challenge the one God, the all-powerful God, and say, shouldn't the God of justice act justly? meaning you are constrained by your own ethics. And what does that mean then for human beings? If God is just, human beings had better act justly or you would invoke the wrath of the just God. Does that make sense? It's an incredible amount of chutzpah. And it's an incredible amount of chutzpah on Abraham's part. God does not seem upset at all. God's like, Okay, <laughs> let's let's say you find fit. Wait, so God considers it. God is is in an, in an intimate interaction with Abraham. So I just wanted to lift up a the huge theological shift. This is that that Abraham's implying you have to act justly. That is a brand new idea in the ancient world. This is a pretty serious wrestling match. It's a very serious wrestling match. So so. The other thing is that is that Abraham says, "Shall the shall the innocent be wiped out with the guilty?" and seems to suggest by saying, "Let me find let me, let me find ten, mm-hmm. <laughs> right?" Or, or God finally they finally get down to a, a, a deal of ten, and that seems to be the minimum. Like our concept of minion, it seems to be the minion. The, the minion it seems to be the minimum for a community of any kind, right? So. We, they negotiate down to 10. So what is Abraham suggesting? Abraham is suggesting that justice would be that the vast majority of the city be spared for 10 innocent lives. That's another huge shift. Better that 100,000 guilty people get off than 10 innocent people are punished. That is a brand new idea as well. Right? There's hints of it. But this is the first time right, a religion in the ancient world is saying that would be fair. That 200,000 get off because otherwise 10 innocent people would perish. Okay? That, so that, those are two huge shifts. 
that we hear in Abraham's argument. One is hugely theological. The second is more of a moral, ethical uh, concern. That it's better that guilty people go free than that innocent people be punished for something that they didn't do. That affects the death penalty argument, too, considerably. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. All right. So God has told Abraham what's about to happen. We get the Malachim that are coming. The other thing I want to remind us is at the very beginning of the Parsha, the Parsha is called Vayera. Right? Abraham looks up, and there appears to him three men. He invites them into his tent. He makes this huge meal for them. They are strangers. What have we talked about? Why does Abraham do that? What is one of the values we associate with Abraham and Sarah? Welcome. Hospitality. Welcome. Hospitality. Let's remind ourselves. In the ancient Near East, hospitality, which is what our text is actually about, that we're going to get to, hospitality was the law of the land. Everybody was going to wind up traveling. Everyone was going to wind up in some town where they didn't have any relatives or clan or protection. In order for me to know I'm going to be safe wherever I need to go, it means the law of hospitality and welcome must be sacrosanct. So if someone entered your home, and this is still true, if you go to a Bedouin village today... Bedouins, it is the law of their culture, the top law of their culture, that if someone needs a place, you give them a place for three days. And when they are in your home for those three days, they are under your protection. Nobody would dare to mess with that guest because they know that the host will kill on behalf. Right? It's a blood guilt. The host is the protector. And if they do mess with that stranger, now you have a war. It's that serious. You don't say, oh, well, you know, I don't really know Joe. So, right, see you later. Right? This, so um, hospitality was absolutely the law, just like it is still today uh, in areas of the Middle East. And it was even more serious because it was completely the culture of everybody. Right? Like everybody understood this. So one of the ways we're going to get the proof that Sodom was so horrible is a violation of that. So I want us to focus on that, all right? So, so um, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was, uh, has now moved to Sdom. He was camped outside of it for a while, but he's moving from a semi-nomadic pastoralist lifestyle to an agrarian city urban setting. Lot gets up and does what you're supposed to do when you see two strangers, right? You welcome bow, right? We always bow, put our forehead to the ground. You, what does that do? That says you are important. I am less so in this instance, right? I acknowledge your importance. Uh, and he says, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night and bathe your feet, right? Foot washing was an, a sign of welcome and hospitality in the ancient world. This is why we do it for baby girls, often as a part of a ritual of welcome and of covenanting and bringing girls into the covenant, since Thank God we don't have female <laughs> circumcision, um, and so there's no there's no you know physical ritual, and so people have started foot washing as as a lovely way of saying you know we we welcome you into this family into this people. So spend the night, bathe your feet, and then you may be on your way early. But they said no, we will spend the night in the square. Um, so first of all, they are unafraid, right? 
right? They're they're not afraid, and they're kind of emissaries for how's it really going in this town, right? Like what's really happening in this town? Because normally it would be unthinkable that someone would sleep in the square. Unthinkable. You always sleep mm-hmm. in someone's home as a guest. Um, but he urged them strongly. So they turned his way and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, which is something you can bake quickly because it doesn't need to rise. He bakes matzah. <laughs> uh, and they ate. Okay, you want to go off for it? You keep on going? Yeah. They had not yet lain down when the townspeople, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man, gathered about the house. And they shouted to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may be intimate with them. So Lot went out to them in the uh, to the went out to them to the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, "I beg you, my friends, do not commit such a wrong. Look, I have two daughters who have not I known a man. I told you it was going to be bad. Let I me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you please, but do not do anything to these men, since they have come under the shelter of my roof." But they said, "Stand back." The fellow, they said, came here as an alien, and already he acts as the ruler. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the person of Lot and moved forward to break the door. But the men stretched out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And the people who were at the entrance of the house, young and old, they struck with blinding light so that they were helpless to find the entrance. Go on. Then the men said to Lot... Whom else have you there? Sons-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else that you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against them before the Lord has become so great that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law as one who jests. Okay. I told you it was going to be bad. So... <laughs> it's Eric <so>, Kushner's. <laughs> so they had not yet laying down when the townspeople, the men of stone, so it wasn't even dark, right? It wasn't even in the dark of night. They come, they're bold enough to come out, right, um, in the early evening, young and old, so it is, a, it is not one generation. This is clearly everybody, everybody. everybody all the people to the last man gathered about the house. So the entire population, when guests arrive, come, right, to pounce on that house. And they shouted to Lot, where are the men who came with you? Bring them out to us that we might be intimate with them. So they're saying, bring them out here. We're going to rape them. It is very clear. Absolutely clear that this is about rape. Well, not about rape. It's about power, mm-hmm. right? It's about, we're going to kill you if you don't do this, it's, which is rape is always about power and anger and you know whatever um, and so so that is, it is obvious that that's what this no one shies away from the fact that that's what this is so Lot went out to them to the entrance shut the door behind him and so he goes out of the house he shuts the door right, and he's begging them not to attack his guests and says he has two daughters virgins. who are they are betrothed mm. they've not yet mm. been married we know that because it says the sons-in-law, mm-hmm. right? So legally, they are they are committed to uh, to other men who are there, um, but they have not yet been married in terms of consummating the marriage. 
daughters had less status, right? We know that. And we know that the leader of the clan in the ancient Near East had complete control over the life and death of everyone in his home. This is not a text so much about, I mean, I know it's horrible. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's horrible. But it's not so much about that as it is about attacking his guests mm-hmm. was the worst thing you could think of. Now, we can talk at, at length if we want to about what is that in a society that raping young women is less bad than raping guests, right? We, but, but I don't know that there's a lot of point to that conversation, right? What we have to say is to, to viciously, you know, sexually assault his guests was the worst thing that could happen to Lot in this society. The worst. So how do you try to prevent the worst? You go to the next <laughs> least worst, right? Which was to ruin essentially his daughters. Um, so they... We're talking about mass rape here were, too. Gang rape. Yeah, gang rape. Absolutely. Um, but they said, stand back. So the people are now yelling to Lot, um, you know, and, and about Lot, stand back. He came here as an alien and already he acts the ruler. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So we are getting the full weight of how evil, right, the people of Sodom are. Lot was right to be nervous and he risked himself to bring these guests in, right? So believe it or not, he comes off pretty good here, right? Like he, he risked himself, knowing what the people of Stone were like, he risked himself to protect those guests and bring them out of the public square and into his home, and when they were attacked, was willing to do whatever it took to protect them, uh, and we see that he's a gare, right? That's, that's what they say to him right now at verse 9. So, you know, it says, Vayamru lagur. He came to dwell, right? And, and remember, dwelling, to be a ger, dwelling somewhere is very different from being from that place, of that place, with clan, with protection, with your family, with everybody who there would be blood guilt incurred, right? If someone, someone hurt you, there'd be a mass of cousins, right, riding out to avenge that. Lot has none of that. So the other thing I want us to remember is this is also a story of our people to remind us what? Why did I bring that up? Um, to be kind to the stranger. To protect the gear. We're supposed to be the exact opposite of what's happening here. That if evil is defined as you know non-hospitable, non-welcoming, ready to do violence right of all kinds, because um, it doesn't, it's not about homosexuality, which we can get to, but it's like, because it's clear, he offers his daughters. This isn't just about violence, right? This is just about rampant, horrid violence. If, though, if that's, and, and it happens to someone who they say, because you're vulnerable, you're a gare, and you dared to speak up on behalf of these folks, you're going to get it worse than them. All of this is saying to the people of Israel, what are you not supposed to be? What are you not supposed to do? You are not supposed to break the rules of hospitality and of welcome and of the safety that that, that is supposed to provide. And you are not in any way to have the gare feel like this. Have this be their reality. That if they stand up, if they speak out, right, they're 
even more vulnerable than a townsperson who spoke up would be. Has anybody ever examined why this would be raping them instead of murder or other kinds of physical violence? You tell me. Power. Is this because it's Saddam and that's where all the sexual deviation happens? No, it's just power. Well, you're a most of the time. Deriving that Saddam is about that kind of behavior is a later thing. But why why have that be the act that, that, that they're threatening? Yeah. It's, it's worse. worse. It's, it's not as bad. It's the worst. I'd rather die than often than experience. I, I can't watch movies where they torture people, right? It's like mm-hmm. I, I just kill me. How many times do you see beg and you're gonna beg and I'm not gonna kill you? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have you keep begging. There are things that are worse than dying. Debasing. They're debasing. They go to the core of crushing who you are as a human being. They are, they obliterate you as a human being while you're aware of it. This is the worst thing the authors could think of. Was to be dragged out into the streets for men. Remember, we're talking about men. For men to be dragged into the streets and raped. As horrible as it is for a woman in this culture, for a man to lose power and control of his, right, that's the male role, remember? That's why homosexuality was forbidden, was because for a male to give up the dominant sexual role and become the submissive sexual partner was seen as kind of a violation of the, like, just order of things, and why would you do that? Why would you give up your male dominance, right? That's just, like, why would you ever do that? That's horrible, like, you know, that's the worst thing you could do. And so when thinking for them about what's the worst that could happen to them, it's this. I mean, it's horrible for everybody. I'm not trying to compare, but I'm just saying, if you think about male status and what, what males would have been like, like it's taboo, it's, it's a loss of power, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a torture of, it's just the worst thing they could think. Whether we agree with it or not is not important. It's the worst thing the authors could think of to threaten right, these gifts with. And people who live through it will tell you that it's, or if not the one of the worst things that could happen to you like yourself not just like someone you love but one of the worst things that I mean oh, my allergies are going great uh, it's one of the worst things that could happen to people some people never get over it ever so so if so if the gare is this threatened and is then we are the people who say you shall love the gare you shall treat the gare like one of you. You shall protect the widow and the orphan. You are to protect the vulnerable. So a lot of these texts are about what we're not supposed to be, what we're not supposed to do, and of course we've talked about and who God is supposed to be, right? So as, as vile and as much as we hate this scene, we don't feel too badly <laughs> at the end when God blows up the city, <laughs> right? So the it's here to say you know, only because this is happening, right? Then the just God is justified in justice and God's response, right? But isn't it true sometimes that I mean, for the years, Jews have been gears, um, yeah. or at least have been seen as gears yeah. throughout all of Europe? Of course, you yeah. Know, as we were moving, you know, beyond the pale, as it were. Yeah. Um, we were looked at as gears. Of course. Right. So, but all of our teachings from "You Shall Love the Gare" comes from when we were 
When we, when we had the land, when we were the authority, when we were in power, right? Then we spent the rest of our time being a gear. But our original story is we were gayrim in the land of Egypt. Our story is we've always been gayrim, right? And unfortunately, like it, you know, it went on for two more thousands of years. Um, but but sure, we, then we became the gear. All right. So the men strapped. So and they pressed hard against the person of Lot and moved forward to break the door. But the men stretched out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And the people who were at the entrance of the house, young and old, they got struck with this blinding light so that they can't find the entrance. Then the men said to Lot, whom else do you have here? Right? They, um, the, these, these men are the Malachim. Right? Who else do you have here? Get everybody that, that's with you. Get them out because... That the outcry, and this is this is the other thing. So we look at tsa'akatam, their tsa'aka, their cry has reached God. What does that mean? When the tsa'aka reaches God, what does that mean? God's gonna act. God's gonna act. Where else do we see this? Egypt. How do we see With it in the Egypt? Su- the suffering of the uh, Israelites, well, or Hebrews. Suffering is one thing. When does God act? When God hears the tzaka. We can suffer all we want, but until we cry out against the injustice, right? So the tzaka is always the voice of the innocent. Always. And God cannot tolerate the tzaka without acting. What the action is depends on what the tzaka is about. And God tells Israel all the time, you shall protect the widow and the orphan because if their tzaka reaches me, I'm going to do to you what I would do to anybody else because I'm the God of justice. So you better figure out how to behave and how to build a society where their tzaka doesn't come to me. Don't make me come down there. (laughs) Right? If it gets too loud down there, right? I have that sign at home and says, don't make me come down there, God. Um, it's a gentle reminder every day. I have the one in my office that says, tell the children I love them, and God. Um, so, this tsa'aka, this is the heart of the story. That the tsa'aka, when the tsa'aka reaches God, you're done. So the Malachim are saying the tsa'aka has already reached before this. The tzaka had already reached God, and God is coming down. So y'all better run, right? She's coming down here. We better run. It's an interesting point here because you have men, uh, men and women, people, being able to affect what God does. Yeah, and, and with a direct relationship. Right. Not because they're jealous that I'm worship. It's well, although we do have God uh, having some opinions about what happens when we worship other gods. Don't get me wrong, but um, but right. So there seems that it's a logical consistency consistency that is not been seen in the pagan world. Until like this is the new idea in the pagan world. So all right, fifteen. As the dawn broke, the angels urged Lot on saying, up, take your wife and your two remaining daughters, lest you be swept away because of the iniquity of the city. Still he, be, still he delayed. So the men seized his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, in the Lord's mercy on him, and brought him out and left him outside the city. 
When they had brought them outside, one said, Flee for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lord, you've been so gracious to your servant and have already shown me so much kindness in order to save my life, but I cannot flee to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Look, that town there is near enough to flee to. It is such a place. Little place. It's such a little place. Let me flee there. It is such a little place. And let my life be saved. He replied, very well. I will grant you this favor too, and I will not annihilate the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, flee there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Hence the town became known, it came to be called Zoar. All right. Who's the he? Where? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who, 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 who's just talked? He replied, the, very well, the, I will grant you the favor. The Is that God? angel. That's a malachim. Yeah. yeah. So cool. we get we get several times that he's calling this town, right, that it's a very what town? <laughs> right? Little. Mitzar. 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 It's very Tsar. Tsar. And the town is named? Zoar. Zoar. Not a Z in Hebrew. Tzoar. So the town is Mitzal, and it's Tzoar. Mm-hmm. It's the exact, I mean, it is clearly a story about how the elephant got its trunk. The town is called Tzoar from Lot saying, look, it's just such a little town on the way. Let me go there. It's just a little town. But that's clearly how the city got its name. Because um, it had a different name before, right? So in Israelite times, it's Tzoar. So how, how did that name came to be? Because Lot called it Mitzal. Okay, um, I'm, I'm confused because now we have the the malach, right, the angel, saying, "I won't destroy the town." But before it was God. Remember, was you have to remember. Whenever we're dealing with the theophany, right. we're dealing with its who does what. Is it the bush talk? Is right. it the malach in the bush? Is it God? Is it Jacob said he wrestled with an ish, but it was God. But it's a malach. But it's a right. It's it's a literary way for us to know that this is not normal space time. Right, we have stepped through a wormhole, and we are in an alternate reality in which God is entering our our reality. God's going to punctuate our reality, and whenever that happens, it gets all jumbled. And the Malachim are God's emissaries. They are absolutely connected to the divine. They cannot act independently. So anything that they do has to be right. They can't think, which is what I hear giggling. Really. You want to say more about that? <laughs> well, I mean, if they can't think, then, then they can't be part of, I mean, it just seems, doesn't, that doesn't connect, I think. They, they can't think independently. They are like the hands. Mm-hmm. They, they are direct messengers, right? They are direct. But why are they not, why, why is it just, I mean, another way of, Because you need another step in the process. You need another character. You need like there. There are malachim. There are lots. Most I would say most places other than Revelation. Most places in Genesis where we have a theophany, there's a malach involved. Okay. There's. I mean, I'll, I'll try to think. I mean, I would have to like map it out to do the ratio. But but it, there's often a malach. Either a dream. How come God just doesn't talk to Joseph? Right. Why a dream? Right, wait. 
there's there's often some intermediary, right? Probably left over from when we were Canaanite and other you know traditions that had very strong attachment to the seraphim, the frightening, terrifying beings that guarded the temple. There, there was. I don't think we can separate those. The peoples in the ancient world believed in malachim. You have to remember that. We're like, why use a malach? For them, it's like, well, there are malachim, and they are doing stuff all the time, right? And they're, it's, you know, where do they appear? Where do they not? Probably tradition, probably, right? So maybe based on a story one time where three strangers were walking by and something weird happened. Like it, but for them, it wasn't like you, you, you add it in to a story, right? It, they are part of the fabric of We've had this question before, so I don't know how far I want to go down that rabbit hole, but we have to be careful when we say someone's choosing to write it this way. This is a legend. Someone doesn't sit down and write a legend. That doesn't happen. Legends evolve, right? They change. And how, what the final redactor decides to write down for sure is a conscious choice. It's mostly oral But tradition. stories evolve. They 100% come out of an oral tradition where stories were told around the fire. Someone didn't write this story down like, hmm, one day, let's see, what should I do? Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a story that's been told in the neighborhood in many different ways by many different cultures for a really long time. Then we have the Israelite version of, let's pick the flood, right? The flood story is everywhere in the ancient Near East. This story probably is all over the ancient Near East because probably there were two towns that were obliterated. You need, what, what do you sit around the fire and say, did you hear it? Did you? Abraham sees the smoke. So we can say, well, that, it's a made-up story. We, what do we care that he saw the smoke? But, but most likely, stories like this come out of two cities disappeared, and there was a bunch of smoke. <laughs> the best scholars like the flood. Something happened where there was a devastating flood, and everybody has to, in the ancient areas, make some sense out of that. You have to account for the mystery of it. You Somehow. You, you, you have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You have to address it. They don't sit around and go, so how do we feel? No. <laughs> about the fact that our, our basement got flooded and our whole house is not. You, they sat around going, whoa, what just happened? Right. What was that about? What was that about, right? So, well, you know, I've heard about Sodom, right? They are not very nice people, right? So, so. Legends evolved to, to, to talk about and process, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to process what's happened. This is how they process. So what happened probably, if we look at where we think Sdom and Gomorrah might be, there is nothing, by the way, nothing left of biblical Sdom and Gomorrah. So, but when we kind of get the region from the text and what's going on, most likely it's um, in the below the Jordan Valley and the the... Syrio-African rift, so it's by the Dead Sea, right? Think, think Israel, right? Do we have the map of Israel in our head? Griff, let me, let me get to my audiovisual thingy here. Somebody mm. took it, or did somebody mess with it? <laughs> let me see. Somebody moved it. <laughs> what? 
Oh, yay. All right, so when I show you this, and it, this is the map of Israel, and it's bumpy, right? It's the bumpy kind. And the reason um, some of us are attached to the bumpy kinds is because it shows you the actual topography. To- thank you. Topography of the land. So if you look, you can see that there is a big valley here, right? This is the Syrio-African Rift. It's a rift that runs from Syria to Africa. Africa. (laughs) So it's aptly named. Um, So the Syria-Africa rift is a fault line, right? It's a a break between two big honks, right, that happened er early, right, and possibly um, some scholars believe, and so this is an earthquake, this is very earthquakey here. So most of, I mean, there's a lot of cities. Most of the ones that we have that are in really good shape were destroyed by earthquake. Why are they in really good shape? If you, if it's destroyed by war or by fire, there's often not a lot left. If and whoever comes in then pulls it apart, takes the whole city apart. You're going to take whatever you can use. But if it's an earthquake, often the whole thing just falls over. The city just right, everything collapses, um, and it's left like that. And we find it like that. Beit She'an is a perfect example. Beit She'an, a Roman city that is beautifully intact. I mean, they have to excavate and excavate and excavate, but it's beautifully intact because it was destroyed by an earthquake. So possibly this Sdom and Gemara, so if we look, where's the Dead Sea? So here's the Dead Sea, right? What do we know about the Dead Sea? Very salty. Right? So we're going to see like a little bit about that in just a minute. Um, but Sdom Gemara, if, if it's in this region, they think possibly there was an earthquake, right? When you have an earthquake in this region, there is a lot of bitumen that comes up from underneath. And often in a uh, earthquake situation, you have a lot of lightning. 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 So if you have stuff coming up from the ground like sulfur and bitumen, and that's coming up, and you have lightning coming down, it is very possible that lightning ignited the sulfur and the bitumen. So the bitumen was burning, and the sulfur, and so the cities blew up. In the ancient world... You need to talk about that somehow. <laughs> Two cities just blew up. We'd still talk about it. We're still talking about it. <laughs> right? Um, so usually, you know, I'm not terribly interested in the scientific whatever because that's not the point. That's not why we keep right, telling the story. But it is interesting, right, to think about, like, for the people of the region, that this grows up as a way that how else do you explain two cities just being blown up by the just God? We are telling a story about a new kind of God in town. This is the Israelite version of what's changed from the Canaanite pagan world. Well, if you're telling a story about that God and two cities blow up, there, Pay attention. there has to be justice involved. And so we have a story about just how just that decision was. So how we don't just know which God came is. first, the cities blowing up and then the story. For sure. <laughs> For sure. They made up a story. They didn't make stories up about cities that then blew up. Right. (laughs) That would be an incredible coincidence. (laughs) They they, they, they are 
writing a story after two cities completely disappear. All right, so let's let's finish the this part because then we'll look at something else. Yeah. Well, it's it seems that the male, the initial book that was read is is different from the women's version. And yes. what I heard, and I couldn't read both at the same time, was that God was much more powerful in Bert's reading. In the red book? In, in the red uh-huh. book. Than in the green book? Than in the green book. For example, it's, uh, well, at 19, it says, in the green book, it says, look, your servant has found favor in your sight. As I recall, Bert's translation... No, their translation. <laughs> yes. The, You've been so gracious to your servant. Nineteen. Yes. But generally. But the, so it, at least it sounded to me like God is much more powerful there than in this the, one. The, the Hebrew term, matzachen be'enei, somebody, is you find favor in the eyes of somebody. That means they favor you. Yes. They've been gracious to you. It's a euphemism. It's an idiomatic expression. In this book, it's translated literally. In yours, it's what it, the idiomatic expression means. To find favor in someone's sight is that they've treated you well. Can you what you just said? So, so my my text reads is just probably like Bert's. Literally, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. What does your book say? That's ours. That's our translation. And what does yours say? Uh, 19. Uh, you have been so gracious to your servant. My English says you have been so gracious to your servant. There is no difference. No, okay. In, like, in, uh, in general. It's about a choice that we pointed out before. When do you use the literal and when do you move to what the idiom actually means in the language? Right. It, when you when when I say I'm going window shopping to someone from Paris, they don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm shopping for windows. <laughs> you have window, like so, right? But in in France, it's the, to go to lick the windows is to go window shopping, right? So it's about when you choose to use the actual words. And the rabbi went window shopping and translate that into Spanish. If you translate that into Spanish, the, the rabbi went window shopping, mm-hmm. and you write those words in Spanish, the Spanish reader goes, what did that have to do with her buying shoes? <laughs> she was shopping for windows. <laughs> and they're confused, right? So, so often the translator will choose to say, the rabbi went looking at things in the stores mm-hmm. without any particular mission to buy. Right, right. How do you explain what window shopping is? Right, so um, that's that's the difference between these two. Sometimes you'll hear me say, "I don't like it when they do that because you lose the sense of the Hebrew." Right? They chose window shopping for a reason. Why window? Right? And so sometimes I don't like it because it, it too much gives the the new cultural context and and leaves the Israelite context behind. Um, but in this case, it's it's. By my estimation, it's it's fair. All right. Thank you. Uh huh. Okay. As the sun rose upon the earth, and Lot entered Zaar, the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah sulfurous fire from the Lord out of heaven. See, sulfurous fire. What what the heck is sulfurous fire? 
right? Most likely there's sulfur Smelly. that ignites. Smelly. He annihilated those cities and the entire plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation of the ground. Lot's wife looked back and she thereupon turned into a pillar of salt. It's still there. <laughs> Next morning, uh, Abraham hurried to the place where he had stood before the Lord and looking down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, he saw the smoke of the land rising like the smoke of a kiln. Thus it is said that when God destroyed the cities of the plain and annihilated the cities where Lot dwelt, God was mindful of Abraham and removed Lot from the midst of the upheaval. So even when God was going to blow up the place, the neighborhood that Lot lived in, God was clearly a just God and got Lot and his people who were innocent out of there. Um, and here we see smoke. We have sulfurous right? fire. Um, also known, uh, what we're talking about, the materials we're talking about, um, would have been known in, in Old English as brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> Fire and brimstone is what we have here. Intense. Um, so, so his. This is the only time we see his wife. This is the only time we see Lot's wife. Is in this. I mean, that's, this is all she does in the taxes. She's told, "Don't like y'all are supposed to run. Don't look back." She looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Any cheesy tour guide in Israel will show you that pillar of salt when you go to the Dead Sea. I'm always like, really? Really? Do, do we have to? Really? When we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, right, the, the learning, the teaching is about cultures that become so violent, right, and so ugly, and I think a lot of that teaching is about how does that start? It starts with we turn a blind eye to what we know is happening, right? Like, you know, we, we drive past certain neighborhoods and don't want to see and don't want to look and drive by whatever or walk by a step over a home. Like, it's when we stop looking and paying attention and being outraged and, and, and we live in a time where we do it a lot. Um, all right, so two pieces that I gave you. Um, I know I need to let you go, so I'm not going to spend too long on it. Um, but look at, uh, I gave you Zorenberg, Aviva Zorenberg, page 110. Abraham gives God the benefit of his da'at, of his personal opinion. From where he stands, chesed is the only modality in which a world can survive. For indeed, his whole life has been concerned with this one theme of potential transitional space out of which creative words can arise. Here, he brings everything he knows back to God. And God will do nothing without Abraham's perspective being taken into account. That Abraham enters into a dialogue that must inform God's own intention. And what, she, what she's getting at is she says, to judge the earth is to annihilate it. Mishpat, justice, is the modality that human beings can never appropriate as their own. Ain midata mishpat midat ha'adam. As the Maharal says, we can't have really the uh, mishpat, justice, as ours. Mathematical exactness is not existentially suited to human life. For weal or woe, mishpat, absolute standards of justice, cannot be realized in this world as God has created it. To adhere to such standards is to destroy the world. 
In order to build the world, chesed, the generous perception of alternate possibilities is necessary. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about God being said it, being mishpat, if God were to truly judge it with mishpat, the world would be destroyed. <clears throat> because there are detention centers in the wealthiest country in the history of the world where people are being tortured and no one's doing anything about it. Boom. If God were a God of mishpat, of true mishpat, the world would be obliterated. This is a famous rabbinic teaching that Zornberg is bringing. She says that what Abraham is saying to God is for there to be any potential for human life to exist, there has to be the element of chesed. That what Abraham's really saying to God is you, you can't have this world and do true tzedek. It, it, it's not possible. The world can't exist in a place of tzedek only. A divine judgment of tzedek. There has to be chesed. There has to be mercy. There's no excuse for not working toward improvement, though. He's saying it's impossible. The Midrash and, and the tradition says it's impossible yes. because we will always have our understanding of, well, I, I didn't deserve that. Right? Like, we're always gonna, we always are gonna see things through the lens of our own understanding of reality, and that's always different from someone else's. And so Lisa might think it was perfectly fair, right? But I'm like, absolutely not, right? Well, where's, what's Tzedek there, right? So yes, as a community, we have to work towards some kind of agreement about what the behavior is. But talking philosophically, if we really had an all-powerful, almighty God who was dealing with the world according to Tzedek, God's own perfect Tzedek, we would be destroyed. Um, and so Abraham comes in our tradition to represent chesed, that which is always translated loving kindness, which I that's a <laughs> terrible translation, but there's not a better one, right? Mercy is really rachmanut, is rachamim. Chesed is love that we give that is unearned, right? It's it's um, gratuitous. There's there's yeah, gratuitous, and there's not a great translation uh, in English. All right, so so Abraham becomes the the symbol in our tradition of of Chesed, and is always the one arguing for Chesed for the Jewish people, right? And is, is always a testifying, right, that that um, that Chesed should be a part of divine accountability, or Chesed. God's Chesed is how we get Chesed. Um, so the midrashic teaching that she's taking this from is when we have our when he talks to God he says the judge of the world the judge of the whole earth shall not do justice. So if you read the Hebrew it, it they translate it shall not the god of justice. If you read the Hebrew you can translate it literally the judge of the earth shall not do justice. If it is a world you want then strict justice is impossible. If it's strict justice you want, then a world is impossible. So taking the Torah and completely right, rereading it. Um, the other thing I want to introduce you to, if you haven't seen it, is this book, Torah Queries. Right? So uh, taking the text and querying the text. Um, so it is a wonderful way, whenever there's a text I'm really struggling with, I tend to look at Torah Queries because it's just going to give me right, a completely different in. 
to the text or a different way to look at it? So um, we're, we got to the end of the story where we have Lot's wife. Amy, is that, is that the, the start of the famous saying from Micah, do justice, love mercy, and walk with your That's God? Right. I mean, those are concepts that are there in the tradition, yeah. you know, for, and then Micah says, well, th- and that's what's most important, really. Th- that's it. Yeah. That's all you need. All right, so go to page 30s. Remember how this partial began. Vayera. Three men appeared. So the author of our article, uh, Gwyn Kessler, is arguing that we tend to read the Sodom and Gomorrah story on its own, and that that's a mistake. You have to read it in context of the Parsha, or it doesn't make a lot of sense. And people love to lift this story out, and we know what they tend to use it for, right? Is homosexuality got Sodom and Gomorrah blown up, right? Sodomy comes from here, right? So um, that's usually how it's taken. It's completely not here in terms of that being any kind of the point. Um, but it's lifted out of its context a lot of times. You'll hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what Gwyn is arguing, Kessler is arguing, is it's a mistake to, and, and even if people want to do that, I mean, we could lift up any story and pick it and take it apart, and we do that a lot, and we love it, and that's fine. But if you really, if you want to queer the text, if you want to get past how people normally just pull this out and read it, then one of, ways, one of the ways to do that is to say you can't read it without reading the whole context of the Parsha. The whole context is about Avraham and God. This whole Parsha is about a relationship between Avraham and God and how it's developing. This is one scene. It's not about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about God and Avraham. Vayera, and there appeared three men. We get looking and seeing all through the text. How do we end the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot's wife is told, don't look, mm-hmm. and she looks. You can't read all this partial without looking for, for all the places there's looking and seeing. Seeing you're supposed to do, seeing you're not supposed to do, and, and it, it runs throughout the partial and makes it a whole piece. And, um, and so we need to read it within that context. So then um, Gwen goes on. Uh, you see, if it's a color copy, you see my highlights. Do I have highlights no, there? Yeah. All right, last paragraph. Very I'm struck by oh, Lot's yeah. wife's act. I am struck by Lot's wife's act of looking back, which still calls to my mind the value, the centrality of such an act in and for Judaism and for Jews. Perhaps the lesson in Lot's wife's death is that it reminds us of the risks, the dangers involved in looking back. Lives are at stake. Perhaps what might be considered problematic in Lot's wife looking back is neither the act of looking back itself, nor that she does so ostensibly against divine command, but the inability to see things differently. We need to see with better eyes. If we do not constantly come up with new interpretations which require continual looking back and seeing anew, the text and its readers stand in danger of becoming pillars of salt, calcified remnants, memorials, whether enduring or fleeting, to a past long since gone. My point is not to attribute blame to Lot's wife or to minimize the only act with which the Bible enlivens her. To the contrary, I want to use her act of looking back, despite its faithful consequences, as a call for contemporary readers, both to look back again and again, and to be able to see things differently so that we might move forward. That's what happens. 
if we can't look back and see things differently, we're frozen. Right. That's exactly what happens. In the context of what you just read, the uh, commentary here, and this is a women's edition, says she is reluctant to ignore what happens to those she leaves behind, and this concern costs her her life. As a human being, she couldn't help but turn around and say, what's happened to all these people? Right. Uh, that's something to think about. Definitely, but it, I don't like it in terms of then where it goes. Like you have to take it a step further. Okay, fine, but she, yeah, so you could say, oh, she it's human suffering, and she looks back, and she's she, and then she's randomly punished for that. That does not work for me. As as how what's the meaning of she turns into a pillar of salt? This is much closer to it. If we can't move on, if we can't look back at human suffering and hold it in a way and talk about it in a way and get our heads and hearts around it in a way that we can live with, we cannot move forward. And we calcify. Look at people who survived the Holocaust. The worst thing possible. There were people who moved forward and people who stagnated and killed themselves. The di- what's the difference? You could say it's their makeup. right? What The difference is how they saw everything. Could they look back, and what Gwen Kessler, I think, is saying, could they look back and see it differently so that they could move forward? It doesn't mean we stop looking. It doesn't mean we don't take it into account. It doesn't mean we don't let it register. It means if we can't figure out a way to hold and see things differently, we calcify in place. Okay, it's perfectly fine to calcify, but I don't want that. <laughs> right? The, I think I love her querying of the text saying it's about how we look back and see things. And I mean, I've always taught her looking back as being her inability to move, her inability to move past what was happening. Yes, she saw the suffering, but if you can't move on, if you can't run when the time comes, if you can't look forward to build something else in the wake of all that pain and disaster, I gave this sermon on some level at Yom Kippur if we can't find a way to deal with the pain and the betrayal and the rupture and what shouldn't have happened and should never happen to innocence and all of us are innocents when we come into this world if we can't figure out a way to hold that and confront it and deal with it we will stagnate we will ossify and that doesn't serve anybody She's a pillar of salt. What what can a pillar of salt do in the world? Have you read a gentleman in Moscow? Yeah. Oh. I see this as a patriarchal <laughs> anti-feminist. Just silly woman. She didn't obey. <laughs> so that's one way to read it for sure. I, I but I can't stay there. No. It's not helpful for me to stay there. No. I have to look back and clear the text. No. I don't care if they wrote it as a sexist patriarchal piece of crap. I, that's fine. But for me then I don't want to be in dialogue with it. And some texts, I'm like, we're done. I'm not, you know, I can't stand it. It's a patriarchal piece of garbage. I can't deal with it. Fine. I'm happy to be honest about that. But this is one where I think it's, I think there's more there. I think there is something about the ways, if we get caught back there, yes. If we get caught back there and can't run, she's got two daughters. Get them to safety. Like, run. Get them out of there. Right. I mean, that's the shot. That's the surface reading. But right, it's it's what are you what are you attending to in that moment? And 
she doesn't look forward to how how do we get there right with all of this going on she's she's caught she's stuck back here and so the, the surface reading, right, is one, but I think the, the remez and the so, the, the deeper readings are about the ways that we get really caught looking back. And, and then, we just, then we just stay in the same place. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org